All right, in Exodus 20, verse 14, we have just the very brief phrase, no adultery. That's what the text says. It doesn't have all of thou shalt not, that's been added, but it was just the word adultery with the word no attached to it, no adultery. Now, you've got to remember, Israel had been, uh, uh, just before this, in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. They'd come out of that context. They had been just completely broken down through slavery. Now they're being made into a nation. They're going to move through the wilderness, and they're going to go into the land of promise. We were in slavery to sin. We are moving through the difficulties, the vicissitudes of this life. When this life is over, we will go into the promised land. We will go to glory. And so you begin to see that there is a correlation between our lives and the manner in which the commandment was initially given. So when we see the commandment, then we come um, to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Moses, the great lawgiver, has followed an outline. Now, Jesus, the one who comes to help us understand the word of God more completely and perfectly, not changing it, but deepening it, he follows the exact same pattern here as Moses. So after dealing with murder and anger, Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be uh, thrown into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I'm trying to think of some way to coordinate all of the parts of the scripture that deal with this commandment, I think the very first thing we need to do is think about the mind. Concretely, truth comes initially to impact our mind. It flows into our minds as the believers, those who are the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and directs our lives. Now, we need to understand that the commandments are also for all society. It's not merely for the church, but the commandments are for all of society in all times. Now, when we come from dealing with the mind, we need to come and deal with the heart. Now, I remind you of my, one of my heroes, John Calvin. He was one of the first men to have something like what we might call a logo and a motto 
The, the, the logo looked like a hand, flame coming out of the hand with a Valentine's heart in the middle of the flame. So then around this in Latin it said, My heart I present to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Obedience as a Christian is not merely a mental exercise. It's an exercise of the whole person. It's an exercise of our heart. We have to have a heart for God if we're going to obey these commandments in the manner in which God would intend us because God wants our heart. A heart of obedience, a heart of worship, and a heart of service through the direction that the commandment gives us. The third thing that we have to consider here is the will. Seldom is anything carried forward in our lives apart from a determination to do the things that we believe we should do. It's a commitment. It's a consecration to the Lord. Again, the language of Calvin, my heart I present to you. I give this to you. Calvin was... Uh, one of those men who was uh, known as the doctor of the Holy Spirit because he constantly talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Now, when we look at this in the first place, in the mind, the scriptures are clear. Now, let's just kind of see how we're paying attention for a moment. I was talking to an older couple, I would say nearly 80, Churched, good church. They've been coming regularly to a Bible believing, Bible preaching church. We got to talking about heaven. This couple said to me, We won't know each other in heaven, will we? My eyes went like this, and my mind began to go like this, and I thought, self, how many sermons do you think this couple have heard about heaven? And yet this basic idea of heaven had totally, somehow, not penetrated their mind. Now you've got to think about your mind in this commandment. What is this commandment saying? The simplest way, it's saying no adultery. Now how much is no? <laughs> now I'm just trying to be clear here. I'm going back to this heaven illustration. <laughs> how much of no is no? No None. Sexual relating is to be a part of a marriage relationship. All sexual relating is to be a part of a marital relationship. So when we look at the commandment, this is God's will from the very creation. God made them male and female. He says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Jesus again completed that idea, what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. Then the next verse in, in Genesis 2, verse 25 said, And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. A marital relationship is the only place, the only place for sexual relating. Outside of the marital relationship, there is to be no sexual relating. That's really what this commandment's talking about here. Now, man fell into sin. As a result of man's fall into sin, the whole sexual relationship within the bonds of marriage began to be distorted, twisted, perverted, many other words that could be used to describe it, and we see it wherever we go today. So the law forbids all premarital sexual relating. Now, again, the whole idea of American dating basically has gotten into the whole idea of kissing. The whole idea of kissing is a part of sexual relating, and the further that people proceed into kissing, they proceed into petting. The petting proceeds into uh, actual transgression of the actual content of this, but it began much earlier. Then, too, you see that the law forbids all extramarital sexual relating. All of it. So we need to be sure that this is kind of like this heaven thing again, that we get in our mind what the commandment is speaking about. Now, it, it, Jesus is picking up in the Sermon on the Mount that all unbiblical divorcing and remarrying eventuates in adultery. There is adultery as a just grounds for the dissolution of a marriage. That's not our topic for today. There is the legitimate uh, legitimation of remarriage where there is willful desertion on the part of, and the innocent parties in either of these are allowed to remarry in the Lord. But apart from that, whatever takes place in the dealings of divorce and remarriage is going to end up, if it doesn't fall into these two categories, is eventuating into adultery. Tony Evans is an African-American pastor, I think, in Dallas, Texas. He takes no captives, he pulls no punches, and he just looks out at his congregation, pretty much totally mixed ethnically now, and he just looks out at them and says, well, as I look out here this morning and think about this commandment, I would say nearly 50% of you all are living in adultery. Well, <laughs> there was some gasping. But he told them the truth. There are very few people that want to tell the truth here. That is the truth. Where apart from these two aspects here of legitimate remarriage, any other form of remarriage is going to eventuate in the couples participating in adultery. 
The command forbids all, whatever we want to call it, divergent sexual conduct. Now, in the book of Leviticus, it goes into all manner of things of human beings relating to animals, deals with incest, it deals with all manner of things there, and it says that all these things are deviant, and all of these things are under the category of adultery. All forms of homosexual relating fall into the area of violating this command of no adultery. And again, we're seeing just a small percentage of our population wagging the whole dog of the, the whole of our culture in relationship to this. And I would hope that if you were to look at this scripture and say, now, in your mind, in your mind, can you accept that when it says here, no adultery, God is speaking, and God is speaking directly to us, and he's saying there should be no homosexual involvement in the culture, period, zero. There is no legitimation for this. There is no naturalness to this. There may be propensities in people that draw them in this direction, but just to be very blunt with you, before I became a Christian, I had all kinds of propensities in all kinds of areas of life. But when Christ came into my life and the Holy Spirit came into my life, the propensities that were within me that would have taken me in a thousand different sinful generations were all then begun to be refined according to the word of God, reformed according to God's commandment and direction. And it wasn't in my strength to do these things, but it was because of the power of the Holy Spirit and a clear sense of what God's word gives for direction that my life changed. So if a person comes and says, well, I've got these strong propensities that lead me in a homosexual lifestyle and I cannot help myself, you can say John was, had a life that was, had all manner of propensities that led him in a thousand different directions. When the Holy Spirit came into his life, his life changed. Now that's what we see. And we have to understand. Now the reason I'm saying the mind you have to come to the concrete before you can move on. The concrete is saying what God is saying. He's saying it to the entire culture and not merely to the church. Do I have a level of sympathy and to some degree with empathy with people who have problems in all of these areas? The answer is I do. I'm not cold-hearted. Jesus was never cold-hearted. But it would be absolutely uh, a violation of the trust of a Christian person to say anything other than what Jesus says. We have to say what Jesus says. That's the only way, if we can say it this way, back. Let me put it in another way. In the history of homosexuality, and it has a long history. The people who have shown the most mercy 
when there was a revolt against homosexuality was the Christian culture. Because when people, cultures legislated against this at some point in time, the level of legislation was extreme. And the only people that came to their rescue was the church. We've got to understand, but we've got to tell the truth. All right. The mind. God's vision, God's legislation has means to the result that, or the end that he has in mind. So the, the law not merely denies, but the law also promotes. And the law concretely is promoting God's pattern from the creation. So we say, okay, there's a negative side that needs to be taken into the mind. There's a positive side that needs to be taken into the mind. And that's God's pattern. And we see it from the beginning. For this cause shall a man leave his father or his mother. Now you can say it just the opposite. For this cause shall a woman leave her father and mother and cleave to her. It's both ways. They become husband and wife in a pure, in a devoted union to promote God's design. Now, why is it that we marry? We marry in order to carry forth in the world God's view of the world. That's why we marry. Do we love each other? Of course we love each other. But as Christians, when we marry, we marry because we believe that two can do this better than one. And so the union of marriage is a gift from God to enable us to advance God's cause in the world. So we see this from creation. We see that it has the design of propagation of the race. We see that it has joy. Now, uh, again, the catechism's first question, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God, but to enjoy him forever. There's a conjunction there. It's not just to glorify God, but it's to glorify God and at the same time to enjoy all the gifts of God that are good. And marriage is one of the chief good gifts of God that he's given to us. And so we embrace marriage as a gift from God and we embrace it with joy in this life because it is a staging for the life which is to come. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 5 as Paul talks about this mystery of marriage is great, but I speak of Christ in the church. So marriage in this life is, as it were, a platform to prepare husband and wife to live in the life which is to come in a manner that is carrying forward God's pattern for all of life. It's also for there for us to carry forward a godly offspring. So we're told all the way through uh, the Bible that we are to train up a child in the way that it should go, and when it is old, it won't depart from it. The idea there that this is a parental uh, husband and wife role in, in the church, and, in, and then the last point would be in a civil society. 
Where marriages declined in either singleness and uh, promiscuity or uh, singleness and homosexuality have taken over a culture, the civil society has decayed all around it. That's what we're facing today. It started off with the women's movement of extreme feminism. Now it has been picked up in our day by the homosexual movement and the dissolution of all norms, not just some norms, not these norms, but just norms. Because to take and say that there is anything normative is going to go directly back to God's law that uh, marriage between a man and a woman is the only normative thing. They don't want to hear that, and so all levels of normativity have been attacked in this movement. Now, when we move from the mind, we move from knowing what God's word says, then again we have to come to having a heart for what God says. Do we have a heart that embraces what God embraces for us? God's vision for us in obedience, in worship, and in service. So you have Jesus' language that comes here as he is dealing with the society of Israel in which the idea of adultery was of the most compact and narrow interpretation, which would be that as long as you didn't commit the act, you hadn't violated the command. So anything short in the mind of people at this time of, of just not committing physical adultery, if you didn't do that, then the idea was you'd kept the command. And Jesus went on to show how that's just entirely missing the intention of God. It's taking this thing out of the heart and putting it into some form of a checklist in which you can say, well, I've never done that, so I've never violated that command. So now Jesus begins to deal directly with your body, with your eyes, with your heart, and he says, this is the way this command uh, needs to be comprehended. But when Jesus deals with this, you see where he begins first. He begins with the mind. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. So he goes straight to the mind, and now he moves down by deepening this from the literal to express God's heart and vision for mankind and especially for the people of God. So it's not merely a physical act that's a violation, but it's expanded to include the eyes and the mind and the heart. We violate as we look with the intention of lusting for another person. We violate when we look with lust and when we dwell in a lusting uh, manner in the sense of looking at another person. Now, in reading for this, so I'm reading two different books. Uh, one book is by a Presbyterian minister, seminary professor, dearly loved, and uh, 
he's talking about Jesus's advancement of the Ten Commandments. And it just was a very helpful read. I, I think it was published about 1995-98. Not too old. The other one was a little older. It's written by a Baptist pastor that currently uh, pastors in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, just another very good contemporary read on this. Well, there's her paperback. They're about this thick. Well, John's got a bad habit of finding old musty books. So this one was written in 1864 by a Presbyterian minister, and it's about this thick. Did he wax? Here's what he basically said. Now, you're not, you're not going to believe what do you think was the number one thing a Presbyterian minister in 1864 in an urban area would have thought was the number one area in which men and women would be led to violate this command? I think there were 25 pages under the topic the theater. The theater. Now tell me the, the equivalent to the theater today. <laughs> huh? Oh, you got Netflix? The theater? Oh, we, we can go on and on, can't we? How many ways do we have access to the theater? We're watching uh, one of these crime movies. All of a sudden, my daughter grabs the remote and tries, but she can't get it switched fast enough. All she heard was noises. I don't hear that well. I couldn't interpret what the noises meant. She did. It's, where is, where is this gathering our heart to lead it where it should not go? And this is one of the principal things that we see today. The theater has all manner of expressions in our culture. Where you're put in a position where you're the actor, you're the participant. You're the involved party. How can we continue in this vein? You can't do what Job said. You can't make a covenant with your eyes that you won't lust after another person when you totally engage yourself in this area of life. If this is your pastime, this can be your downfall. I'm just wanting to be your heart. They're not there for your mind. If your mind's satisfied by the soap opera, you ain't got much of one. <laughs> they're after your heart. They're after your affections. That's what they're after. They want to involve you in these things. Now, Jesus demonstrates the severity of lusting. 
by means of using these two illustrations of casting off an eye or cutting off a hand. Now, most, eye, most people are right eye dominant. So when you go to the gun store to buy a, some kind of an automatic pistol, or if you're going to buy an automatic rifle, almost all of them eject the cartridges for people that are right eye dominant. There are some people that are left eye dominant. I understand that. But the right eye was seen as something you just could not get along without. Most people are right-hand dominant. So, you know, to try and do with your left hand what you do with your right uh, I mean, you talk about one of having a slow learning curve, that would be it. You can't get along with these things. Jesus says it would be better to get along without these things rather than to violate this command in the area of lusting. Now, that's to help us to understand that it's to be taken seriously. This command is to be taken seriously. That's the reason for it being expressed with the right eye, the right hand. That's the reason why the language is reproduced in this verse, two verses, to heighten the sense of the seriousness of this. So it's talking about people that allow themselves to be dominated by lust end up in hell. Now you say, well, that's, that's, well, I don't know. Well, if you don't know, go to the book of Revelation and read in Revelation 21.8. Outside are the immoral people. So the Ten Commandments are found in the last chapter of the Bible saying people that live in violation of this show that their heart is not belonging to God. It belongs to themselves and to things that it should not belong to. And there's a tremendous warning all the way through the scripture about this. And one of the key reasons it's there is because it represents Christ and the church. Marriage is a platform to eternity. It's for our lives to live together in strength and in comfort and in joy in order that we would be prepared to live in strength and comfort and joy in the world that's to come. And so if we want that, that's a part of what it means to take this commandment to heart. Now notice again, here we are to take an action. Today there's a lot of thought in Christianity that it's just knowing. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Well, uh, yes, that's true. But in the New Testament sense of knowing, it's knowing in the sense of a, a, a carpenter that knows how to deal with his material to have a fine product. I had a friend of mine. He was a general contractor. He could never get anybody to pay him for what his wood worth, work was worth. He would take a a set of wooden windows that came to him to be hung in a house. And he would go to the outside edge where that piece of wood extended beyond the side of the house. And he would very carefully take a router and he would go down and create a very careful drip edge on the bottom of that piece of wood. 
And then he would prime that drip edge two or three times with primer until the primer was there. When he put a finished coat of paint on that drip edge and the water went over the edge of that window, you know where the water went? Straight to the ground. Today, where people don't take that extra step, the water rolls back under the drip edge, gets into the bottom edge of the window framing, and rots it out. This is carefulness. Carefulness in the way this man constructed his houses. It's an art form, the way we live for the glory of God. We have to take an act. The actions that are, we're given here are to be careful with our eyes. Again, we have Job in the Old Testament saying, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I won't look upon a female in order to ogle her, to, to lust after her. God's vision then is for married people. Positively, God's vision is for married people to focus all their affection and all their desire for the mate that God has given them is a gift of his grace and love and to do this in a deeply fallen world. God's desire for each one of us is that we would have a mate and that that mate would be the absolute apple of our eye. We would cherish that mate. We would be, have a singleness of vision, a singleness of thought pattern, a singleness of affection. We would seek to have our emotional cup met and filled by our mate and we would seek to fill the emotional cup of our mate at all times so there would never be any lacking here in one for the other to where there would be room for something of a, of a sinful nature to creep in. That's what we're to be doing. Um, I'll just move on there, but you need to do that. Ephesians 5.32 heightens the vision by equating this vision as an eternal vision of the relationship that Jesus has for his people. We see that in Ephesians 5, 32, and 33. This idea of marriage is equated with Jesus' love and commitment to the church. So our vision is to be like Jesus' vision. It's singular for our mate. It's full of grace for our mate. Um, you know, my wife, every once in a while, she lets me down. You surprised? Now, just really, anybody that buys as many cars as I do in a year and doesn't sell them all quite as quick as I want to sell them in a year, what do you think I do for my wife? And that's just one obvious place where I let her down. I let my wife down. My wife is incredibly gracious toward me. Uh... I, I will somehow slander her more easily than she would ever think about slandering me, but I'll say some foolish thing about how, you know, yeah, I had to wait for 25 minutes before we could leave this morning because my wife was doing 25 things before we could get in the car and leave. All right, you do that one, you do something like that? All right, stop it. <laughs> We're not to do that. We're to be full of grace towards one another. 
uh, we're to understand that we don't work on a merit system with our mate. We give our love to our mate. Our mate does not have to merit our love. We give it. That's, that's the Christian model. We give our love to our mate. It's everlasting. That's what we see Jesus' model. It's self-denial. Jesus denied himself. It's self-sacrificing. And we're done. The will idea is simply this. You have to say, my mind and my heart belong to Jesus. Then my mind and my heart have to belong to my mate, no one else. No one else. If there's ways that this is being violated in your life, then you have to be person enough to do the action of cutting it out of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for your comfort, direction, and peace. And may these things be the betterment of our relationship with our mates and the betterment of the church and society. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.